Oh, hi. I'm your host, Kyle Brownrigg, and welcome to Best Actress, discussing Best Actress and Best Supporting Actress Oscar wins, who we feel should have won, and why. The nominees are Jill Clayburgh in Starting Over, Sally Field as Norma Ray, Jane Fonda, The China Syndrome, Marsha Mason for Chapter Two, Bette Midler, The Rose, and the winner is Sally Field. Hello and welcome to another episode of Best Actress. Today I am joined by a friend, a co-worker, uh, a comedian. I'm so excited to have him on. He was actually the headliner at the very first comedy show I ever did. Uh, Matt Carter. Matt, welcome. Ah, Kyle, thank you so much for having me. This is such a treat. Oh my God. You know, I like went through the internet and I was looking for all of your your credits and all of your brags and straight boys you guys don't like to brag very much you guys don't like to wear your pokemon gym badges here's the thing i was thinking about this actually earlier today uh because i was listening to one of your prior episodes and i was i was like oh yeah he really gave a, a very solid intro to 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 your guests and um i realized that most of my credits at this point are um uh poison <laughs> um, so, so two, two, two of my most high profile credits, um, were, uh, I opened for, uh, uh, uh sort of the, a part of the Canadian leg of a book tour for a okay. uh, public per- persona who, um, actually, I think it was last week, uh, the group that he founded, uh, has now been uh, labeled a terrorist organization in Canada. Mm-hmm. I, I opened <laughs> for Gavin McInnes. This was pre-Proud Boys a, a long time ago. This was several, several years ago. Sure. Uh, but Gavin McInnes was one of the founders of Vice Magazine, and he had written a book. And when he was doing uh, uh, these, um, they were om- kind of like st- stand-up shows. Um, and so he was looking for uh, an opening act to do a few shows with them up here. And... Uh, comedian friend in LA had recommended me um and so and the other uh was a few years ago I did a theater show where I opened for uh Chris D'Elia on on uh and I was just like oh yeah this is great it's like I am open for Adolf Hitler on his Mein Kampf tour <laughs> and Bill Cosby you know what I mean just <laughs> your like, burning bridges tour I love that <laughs> but it's like how, how was I supposed to know this was gonna happen <laughs> Well, of course. I mean, you would, you would, you would never know something like that. But that is also kind of a hilarious story that I'm sure that you could turn into some kind of story for the stage. Because uh, I know that you just released—is this your first comedy album? This is my first. Yeah. I got okay. Before we get into your album, which is great, by the way, I listened to it. Oh, why? Thanks. Why is this your? Why is this only your first? You've been like you've been doing this for like a minute, and you're so funny. And I weren't you like nominated for a Canadian Comedy Award and all that? I was. I think the thing with it was like there was a part of me that uh, never really felt ready. You know what I mean? Like you work on a joke, and then my writing style too is I um, 
I always find the idea of writing new material to be extremely daunting. And so what I would do is I just make old jokes longer. You know what I mean? So like yeah. if I was happy with a two minute joke, I, you know, I, two years from now, it could be eight minutes. And so I, my thing was like, n- nothing's ever done. But um, we are an artist, of course. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> right. But I guess if you put it into like a musical context, it's like that first song that you wrote, uh, you, you never write a second. You just end up having like a, a 36 minute pop song. You know what I mean? That's, it's, you can't really do that. But then when my son, my son was born, so much of my standup was kind of about like being this, you know, kind of not single guy, but like that uncle with no kids and stuff like that. So I'd sort of like the sort of the chapters in my life had kind of come to a place where I was like, well, you know what? A lot of this, this isn't necessarily Mm -hmm. me anymore. So. Well, because I was was going to ask you about that because you talk about um, how you are uh, enjoying uh, having not have not having kids and mm-hmm. I'm like mm, this is really funny that's a funny little time capsule because yeah. <laughs> yeah um it, my my son was born in January of 2020 oh, um, wow congratulations so like, thank you but if you're thinking of like you know who should I spend the lockdown with um an infant ch- child is uh not the not my number one pick, you know. <laughs> the conversation is a little bit lacking. You know what I mean? He's a he's he's never the DD, which is such a bummer. Um, but it keeps he, you occupied. That's right, and he really can't social distance for shit. It's ridiculous. You know, he's constantly putting his mouth on stuff. It's like God. <laughs> Well, talking about your album, so you have the album that just came out is called Northbound Baby. Um, that's right. And uh, is your stage name Matt Carter or Matthew Carter? It's Matt. It's Matt, Matt Carter. Carter. Yeah. So anybody listening, check out Matt Carter, Northbound Baby. Very, very funny. I like that bit that you had about the doctor going out and just being like, I'm just going to go and get your grave ready. That was yeah. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. My, it's funny. Well, it's because my sister's a real doctor. And so sometimes she like, and you know, she's my little sister. And I kind of, you know, you we used to pick each other up drunk at the house parties and stuff like that. And now every once in a while, I get to hear her do like real doctor work on the phone. And I'm like, geez. But I bet you it would have been super easy being a doctor when no, all you really did was cut limbs off. You know what I mean? And hope for the best. <laughs> they probably did more than that, but totally. Um, a lot of leeches. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, okay. So uh, this year, it is the ceremony year is 1980. It's Sally Field's first Oscar. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. The previous episode that I did, episode 23, was um, Diane Keaton. And I seem to be falling in this really weird pattern where, you know, I've talked about this before in the podcast, 1970s um, cinema is kind of not my favorite. And the reason why I say it is because I find that every uh, year where it's like the best actress category, I find it to be I either love all of them or I hate all of them. <laughs> and uh, last, the Diane Keaton year, oh my God, I hated all of them. But this year, I actually really liked like like all of these movies. Like this was a solid year. And had you seen any of them prior to this 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 current viewing? I'd seen clips of The Rose and I know yeah. that song, the like, some say love, but I've yeah. never... <laughs> Yeah, I've never, I've never seen any of them. So this was like a, like a totally clean palette, like ready to go, ready to go and, and experience it for the first time. Um, I do have to, 
I do have to let people know, though, um, that we could not find the movie <laughs> Chapter 2. I did, however, find many versions of It Chapter 2. Chapter 2, yes. Yes, with the clown. <laughs> but this actually has previously happened in my podcast before, and I am so sorry to anybody that is listening that is a big Marsha Mason fan. Um, so this has happened previously before. If you listen to my share episode, Sally Kirkland was nominated for a movie called Anna and it's uh, made by a production company that doesn't exist anymore. And I, it wasn't at any local libraries. It, I couldn't rent it on anything. Um, and <laughs> frankly, I'm not spending $40 on a DVD from Amazon. And then I have to find some DVD player that I can play it on. So uh, she got a little disqualified for me. And unfortunately, mm. Marsha Mason in chapter two um, has kind of been disqualified from this episode. However, if it's okay with you, we can start or I can just, I have like a, like some things that have been sort of written here and I can kind of just like fire this out and then we can kind of just move on. About chapter two. About chapter two. Great. Lay it on me. Okay. <laughs> So, um, so, okay. So the story of chapter two, it's, um, James Schneider, who's played by James Kahn is an author whose wife has just died. And then, uh, George Schneider's brother, his name is Leo gives, uh, his brother, the number of, uh, Marsha Mason. They hit it off. And just when things are moving along, the memory of his first wife, uh, comes between them. Marsha Mason received a Golden Globe nomination and an Oscar nomination. Um, this is performance has been described as Marsha Mason playing herself. Uh, and apparently the movie is very slow. It's too long. This story is actually based on Neil Simon and Marsha Mason's um, true life story in the 1960s when they were married. And, um, you know, everybody, all the reviews for this film were kind of unanimous. They basically just said that um, uh, this movie is, is too, there's too much going on. Uh, the expression more is more doesn't work <laughs> with this type of movie. They said that the only reason to watch it is Marsha Mason. She's playing herself um, in the best possible way. They said that she carried this film. Uh, one person said that a, an actress that possessed an instinct for the writer's mind and interpreted his material better than anyone. Uh, she clearly had an advantage because she was married to him at one point, but um, Valerie Harper from uh, the Mary Tyler Moore show was nominated for best supporting actress for this movie. And um, the only place that I can really compare this to is just because it's so fresh in my mind and it, just because it was the previous episode, um, Marsha Mason was nominated for the goodbye girl with Richard Dreyfuss. Mm. And um, Richard Dreyfuss won the Academy Award for Best Actor and Marsha Mason was nominated for this. I did not care for her in this movie. I did not care for her acting. I found it to be very sitcom-y and um, apparently they have compared it to The Goodbye Girl and they said that her performance in The, Good in the Goodbye Girl was superior to this movie, Chapter 2. So if I didn't enjoy Marsha Mason in The Goodbye Girl, <laughs> I think it's safe to assume I would not care for her in Chapter 2. She has mm. been disqualified, but um, I also very likely wouldn't have voted for her. 
Oof, that was a mouthful. I'm sorry. <laughs> right. I, that you know what? I think those were all very succinct points. I've never heard of Martha Mason. I don't know this chapter one or two, and I, <laughs> I concur that she doesn't deserve the, the uh, Academy Award, and she doesn't deserve to be spoken of further in this <laughs> podcast. Yeah, Marsha Mason. I I don't think she ever went on to to win to win any Oscars or anything like that. But um, I did watch the trailer for this movie. Seemed like a solid comedic performance. Good for I love a good comedic performance. But uh, yeah, unfortunately, um, you know she's not going to be part of this. Now, the thing, the only thing that I want to ask before I before I move on and we can we can talk about any of the other nominees is, um, do you know the Richard Dreyfus absolute comedy story? I do not. Ugh, because it was on the last episode, and we were trying to figure out what it was. But we had all it was like a game of telephone, and we all oh. we had all of our details wrong. Hmm. I had I did I had no idea there was one. Yeah, he showed up at Absolute Comedy one night, and apparently the door guy didn't know who he was and wouldn't let him Ooh. go on. <laughs> That's, he wanted to go on stage. Yeah, and he did apparently eventually. Oh, look at that! That's great. Yeah. All right. Okay. Well, then. Anyway, uh, Marsha Mason. Uh, you know. Uh, to you so (laughs) so let's talk about um the second nominee then let's talk about jane fonda in the china syndrome so um this is an incredible movie i've never seen it before um and uh by the way anybody listening to this if you are in canada ctv the app on uh apple tv actually has like like a hundred free movies that you can just watch. And this was one of them. So they have a mm-hmm. really great movie section on the CTV app. So if you are looking for a movie to watch, check out the CTV app, um, the China syndrome. So what that is, is basically this movie is like the prequel to Chernobyl, except for this movie was fictitious and it was slammed at the time for being like, so ridiculous that this would never happen at a nuclear power plant. And Jane Fonda plays a news anchor who, um, you know, basically gets like the story of the century because they were touring a, a nuclear power plant. And then there was like this accident that they were witness to and an almost meltdown and they have all of it on camera. And then, uh, you know, there's a conspiracy from the people that are working at the nuclear power plant. And <laughs> if this information gets out, uh, they're they're going to be killed. And it, it's high stakes newsroom drama and I absolutely love this movie. One thing that I thought was really interesting um, is that when this movie came out, it was heavily criticized for just how ridiculous this would never happen at a, um, a nuclear power plant. But actually two weeks later after this movie two did come weeks. out, <laughs> yeah, two weeks later, uh, the, the, there was an accident on the three mile Island that was very That's similar right. to what happened in this movie. I think that as part of a promotional ploy, Michael Douglas went in and was like pulling some levers and stuff. You know what I mean? <laughs> like he was, he was, he was the producer on this film. He was the first name that I saw whenever the, like, you know, when they play the opening credits. Yeah. And I was like, wow. And it made me go on a dive a bit. And I saw that like Michael Douglas was a producer on one, one flew over the cuckoo's nest when he was yes. like in his early thirties. And you're like, man, if you got a rich and powerful dad. You can get stuff done. <laughs> it's so true it's so true have you ever seen wall street with um with yes, michael douglas yeah do you think that he deserved that oscar for lead role no i really i don't i think there's a bit of a yeah it's there, uh there, there i don't know there is something about this like 
it, I mean, it's interesting when I think about when I think about Michael Douglas and Wall Street, it has this like element of uh, like almost like the Wolf of Wall Street was sort of that idea. It's like a mob movie. You know what I mean? Where it's like there's this anti-hero type thing and it's like, oh, he's saying all of the things that blah, blah, blah. And it's just like it was it's so one dimensional. You know what I mean? Where it's like a, you're a parody of a. Uh-huh. So I just I, I I thought it was a bit of a stretch, you know. Yeah, I remember just reading years ago. I I, I have never seen this movie, and the reason why is just because I I remember reading that it was like one of the most, one of the biggest Oscar upsets was like when he won, and everyone was like, "What?" But anyway, uh, so back to uh, Michael Douglas in the China Syndrome. So, mm-hmm. um, basically, uh. If anybody has not seen 1970s Michael Douglas uh, before he was everyone's <laughs> creepy dad, uh, he was a very, very handsome man. I think yeah. in this in this movie, he needed to bring it way down. Like he would go from like a zero to a 12 in mm-hmm. a second. And it became kind of irritating for me. Uh, but we're not talking about Michael Douglas. We're talking about Jane Fonda. Jane Fonda. Um, so Jane Fonda, this is, uh, uh, I think this was a consecutive Academy Award nomination because I think that she had been previously nominated for Coming Home and she had just won the Academy Award for Coming Home. So that would make her win for this movie very unlikely because she had won for Clute in 1972 and then she'd won for Coming Home. And then, you know, I, I doubt that she would have three Oscars in, this, right. in you know it's just very very unlikely uh but she did win the british academy award for best actress and um i loved her in this movie so she's kind of like <laughs> the like sexy news reporter and i loved just kind of the things that she said because i think that this was at the time when she was starting to kind of get into like the nine to five kind of roles and mm-hmm. um very interesting fact about this movie she uh broke her ankle on set uh, and she apparently used to stay fit by doing ballet in the 70s. She couldn't keep up with it anymore, obviously, with a broken ankle. So she took up aerobics, aerobics and that's what led to her Jane Fonda workout oh, wow. videotapes. Was this movie? Wow. Um, I thought it was like, it, the thing that I, I, I did not, I've never seen this movie before, and I really did enjoy it. And there is like, it's... Um, the thing, like when we, we you said we were watching movies from 1979 of the genre, of of that year, it's always like interesting to see like what kind of um, whether it's like sexist overtones are kind of in place. And so she's right. brought in as like this like campy the puff piece of like the news story, like the broadcast where it was like this is pre 24 hour news network, so it's like at the end they're like, and now let's go to the lady who's going to show us a water skiing squirrel. You know what I mean? Yeah, right. <laughs> and so, like, they kind of, uh, um, and so much of the, not so much, but there's sections of the film that are like shot through the control room. So you see what's on air. And then there's like this other preview screen, which is usually on the disgusting news anchor guy. He was like, do you remember the belly dancer from like the, um, this is at the beginning of the film that she was doing yeah. a piece on the like singing telegrams you can send. And there was a yeah. belly dancer. And then you hear the newscast. He's like, oh yeah, zoom in on that belly button. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you're like, okay, we get it. This is the environment that she's working in. Um, but it is great because it's like, you see that there's this tension between like, you know, um, 
doing what the network wants versus like that idea of being a real journalist, mm -hmm. which was, uh, it's great. I think that uh, the 1970s was just one giant sexual harassment mm. charge, <laughs> like workplace drama. It was, yeah. Uh, and I think one of the, my favorite things about Jane Fonda was that she was complacent, but she knew what she was worth. So for example, um, I thought it was really funny whenever they'd be like, oh, do you want to come for a drink? And she's like, oh, I can. I'm going to the zoo because there's a tiger having a birthday party. And little things like that I thought were really fun. So clearly you could tell that she was in a rut. Um, what I loved so much about the script of this movie was that um, you could always, with every single character, tell um, th what their motivation was. Because this this movie is about... Uh, like a, an accident at like a nuclear power plant, but it's also about them wanting to get further ahead in their careers because they mm -hmm. want to get this story out there and they want to break the story. And um, every character, you know, um, has their own sort of different motivation, which really made the story a lot more exciting. Um, I love whenever her boss at the network basically just said right to her face, whenever she's like, I really want to get into more serious anchor, like investigative journalism, like, you know, stories. And then he goes, you know, you didn't get this job for your news reporting skills. And she has to have like a calm smile on her face mm. and kind of just go along with it. I, I think that the way that she stands her ground, but eventually demands for what she's worth, that ultimately can contributes to Jane Fonda's legacy as like a feminist icon. Right. And I think that that this type of character, this is kind of the Jane Fonda that I want to see. I mean, I saw her in the movie, uh, Julia. Again, I keep talking about the last episode, but I'm just saying in the last episode, we're talking about Julia and she was nominated. And and frankly, she was great in the movie and everything like that. But it's like, for me, I don't want to see Jane Fonda in like a period drama. I want to see her be Jane Fonda. And I feel like in this movie, she was like very Jane Fonda. You know, she mm -hmm. was always camera ready. She's always gorgeous, but she's also I like, yeah, and she's like the, and she, it's such like she is. She does. She sells that idea of being like that newscaster. She, you know, it's sort of. It's funny. Like we're talking about it, and it's like just the tone they said of like the news atmosphere and the way people talk to her. It's like I keep thinking of like I was. I had these moments where, especially when she's in studio with this stuff going on, I'm like, this is like Anchorman. You know what I mean? She's Christina Applegate. You know what I mean? Like in a way where it's like nobody respects her. She's like super smart, super capable. But it's just this thing where it's like, I mean, minus the hijinks, but it, the, the tone is so accurate. It's like, oh, yeah. What I thought was interesting was that whenever they have like the news anchor banter back and forth, it's like scripted. <laughs> yeah. And he goes, yeah. oh, yeah, tomorrow we're doing a piece on hot air balloons. And then she's like, oh, yeah, Tom, I know that you're full of hot air. And he's like, oh, and it's all scripted and it's like on the teleprompter. I thought that was really funny. <laughs> They have like a writer's room, like a bunch yeah. of comics being like, come on, we got to get a little zinger in here for Pete. <laughs> um, so her character, Jane Fonda's character, Kimber Kimberly Wells, uh, was originally written um, for a man. I don't know why they chose, I'm glad they chose to change it. I don't know why they changed it, <laughs> but originally it was um, supposed to be um, a man. I thought it would be a really funny plot twist is if it was actually, because you said Michael Douglas, but I thought it would be funny if the movie plot twist at the end was that Jane Fonda was the one that sabotaged the plant for like the story <laughs> of the century. Um, 
But you know, she, uh, Jack Lemon is in this. Jack Lemon, I loved him in the apartment and um, he was really great in this. At one point she has to go into the control room with him when they're like literally about to have a, a meltdown, like a nuclear meltdown. And um, he goes live on air to, to say his piece because he's in charge of the plan and he's going to admit that, you know, they, there was corruption and they didn't do all the safety checks that they should have. And then he doesn't fucking say anything. Well, and I think that was like, there's a, there's a moment in that scene too, where it's like, she's alone in there and you can see that like Michael Douglas is watching from this like visitor's area. This like this space where like they can't hear what, what's being said other than if you're on the phone. And like, you could tell that like there, there was a part of, and I think there's like this interesting moment of redemption at the end for her, because in that moment where it's like she's given the opportunity to have that story that she wanted, it's like she wanted to break this story from the beginning. Like when they, at the beginning, that first time they go to the nuclear power plant and they come back with that secret footage, they're like, we have a huge lead story. I've got it, I got it, I got it. And then the network kind of fights with her and they, they, they bag it and then they keep trying and keep trying. And so finally it's her moment. It's like you're in there with Jack Lemon, the whole world is watching, everybody wants to know what's going on. And in a sense, it's like, she gives him an opportunity to speak, but it's like when you think about it, the, the role of a journalist and a reporter is so important in sort of being able to frame this information that's being given by this like nuclear science guy, you know what I mean? And so like you can see that like Michael Douglas is in that room being like, God, he's like frustrated with the way the interview's going. And then like, obviously, uh, how do you kind of talk about the ending? Oh yeah. Okay. 40 years. It's a 40 year old movie. So when, you know, after the police come in and they shoot Jack Lemmon and there's this, there's this like almost another huge meltdown. And then she's brought outside. She watches this guy die. And it's like, she, you know, there's, there's probably an element of like culpability where it's like, I pushed this man to tell his story. And Uh so when she, when she forces uh, Wilfred Brimley, that's right, everybody. Diabetes and Quaker oatmeal spokesperson Wilford Brimley made an appearance in this. <laughs> <laughs> and she presses him and presses him to finally like contradict the narrative from the nuclear plant PR guy saying, no, my friend was not a drunk. He's not a crazy person. He's a hero. Like he he was con- he convinced that something wrong was happening and maybe this plant should be shut down. And then it's like that's her moment like and even at the end they're still alive on her and she's kind of crying she's trying to pull herself together and then she frames it in this sense where it's like i met this guy and it's like that idea of like it's almost like like these news stories are just like this lump of clay in a sense and it's like a journalist has to come in and like make it take shape for people to really appreciate it what it is and it's like in that moment where she was like tell me the truth if you don't, if, if you don't, if you're not going to tell us who, if this plant should or shouldn't be closed, who will? And he mm-hmm. says like, whatever, it's like, that's her moment. And I was like, man, that's so, and it's like one of those things too. It's, it's literally like third, like 20 seconds before the credits roll. It's amazing. It's, it's, it was a great ending. It's so crazy that you say that because I, that is, I, I, yours was much more articulate, but my basically said the exact same thing. Like, when she starts to tear up at the end, when she finally gets to, it's like her character is fully actualized at that moment. It's like everything that she was been trying to do the whole movie. She finally did. Yeah. Uh, she, Jack Lemon died. She's like, whatever me. And whatever. <laughs> she's fine. And she, she uses those 
those tears and you know when that fucking camera turned off she's like i fucking nailed it like just yeah. good for her <laughs> and uh that scene was so well acted and i just um it, it uh, this is maybe more of like a technical thing but i always think it's really impressive when an actor in the middle of a monologue can start <laughs> crying and she did mm. it was believable i loved her in this movie i loved i loved this movie and i loved this i loved this performance mm-hmm. so uh, unless there's anything else that you would like to add, we can move on to our next nominee. Do it. Okay. So, oh, no, not Marshall Mason. Uh, let's talk about uh, Bette Midler in The Rose. So this movie was originally, excuse me, supposed to be called The Pearl because it was based on Janis Joplin. And Bette Midler felt that it was a little too close to her death um to be making a biopic like already about her so Mm. they loosely based it on Janis Joplin you can hear it in her voice sometimes you can see the way that she's kind of choosing to dress um if anybody is watching the rose I maybe missed this because I you know I smoke a lot of weed maybe I missed something but it actually is taking place in the 1960s and I didn't quite catch on to that (laughs) um so Bette Midler is this super well basically just picture like Janis Joplin and she has to go back to her town to perform and it's kind of this redemption for her because I think that she kind of saw herself as a bit of a joke no matter how famous and rich she became she is a scalding hot mess of a human being she's drunk she is uh abusive she's stumbling downstairs like she's Like, I'm hooked, you know? Like, I love it. And (laughs) the only thing that I really didn't enjoy was whenever she kept doing that weird, like, Richard Pryor, like, motherfuckers. Like, that kind of got annoying. Mm. (laughs) I didn't didn't enjoy it. But they didn't have cultural appropriation back then. They didn't. Uh, (laughs) And there is, I think it was that thing, too, is that there is that scene where she's about to go on stage and, like, the stage manager is like, please, there's important people here tonight. Don't say motherfuckers. And she's like, I got it. And it's like, it almost, there's, she does have these like comic vibes in a little sense, like as a, like a stand up comic where it's like, please don't say that. And you're like, got it. And she walks out on stage and goes, hey, motherfucker. <laughs> and I'm like, okay. I'm like, there is, uh, yeah, it's, it was, I, I appreciated that moment, but it is true. There is, a, and maybe that's the thing too, is like, maybe we're just so desensitized to it now. But like that idea of maybe hearing it in 1979 or whatever, would it be, you know? Oh, it was probably like so like edgy and like interesting right. when a white girl did it. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Um, Frederick Forrest was uh, her boyfriend and he was nominated for a Best Supporting Actor. Um, he was very good in the movie as well. There was one scene that was really weird where she like, he's he's like supposed to be her like chauffeur and then like at one point he stops the car in the middle of the street in like downtown new york (laughs) and walks into a bathhouse and in the gay community a bathhouse means something very different and Mm. she just runs in right after him like doesn't even care she's like screaming at everybody and Mm -hmm. she's uh kicking down doors and everyone's freaking out that she's in there um you do see and, a blend of uh either the men who cower away from and to hide their genitalia from that meddler and then you do see a couple of guys is like well if she's in here let her take a look at my my my, my dong 
<laughs> oh no, a hundred percent. I mean, I'm pretty sure that realistically, if she were to, if I think if there was, first of all, this is very inaccurate because if Bette Midler ever broke into a bathhouse, I'm pretty sure all the queens would be like, "Yes, queen!" Like they would be worshiping her. This is bullshit, and she would for sure find Frederick Forrest in a sling. Let's put it for what it is. Uh, I think that also, um, if anybody has never seen The Rose, Bette Midler's entire wardrobe was basically Buffalo Bill in Silence of the Lambs when he's like, would you fuck me? Like, that's her entire outfit and hair, actually. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty accurate. Um, um, my favorite... Oh, oh no, my, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. The, thing, the one scene that confused the hell... Because it is also one of those things when she finally does find Fred Ford. He is like full mid-schwitz, you know what I mean? Wrapped in a towel in a back steam room. Like he's been in there for 45 minutes. You're like, she literally just chased you in here. How did you get this set up so quickly? But the one there, like my thing with some of these movies, especially when you're watching, like I'm okay, this is for a drama. These are like my, especially in 1979, my thing was like, what's the plus or minus on like how many of these actresses are going to get hit? by the men in this in these films right 100 percent. and so i mean uh bet midler and and fred force have this weird and, it, and the thing is is he she he is presented as being this like he's the guy that she wants like when her manager doesn't stand up for her when that country music singer says talks shit about her oh, um, wow. to her face it's like she finds this guy and then he starts doing all the things that she wants He's looking out for her best interest, being like, she's tired, we're going to bed. Um, he like rushes on stage to like carry her off. Remember, remember when they're in Memphis and there's like the, the fans are going so crazy, they just storm the stage. So like yes. Frederick, he runs out, picks her up, carries her into her green room. And then she's like, oh my God, it's so hot. And they start going at it, ba ba ba. But nobody seems to notice there's this like hot, blonde, you know, um, Princess Catherine, you know what I mean? What's her name? The, the Prince Will's wife, what's her name again? Megan. No, no, the other one, Kate Middleton. There's this like blonde Kate Middleton sitting in the corner watching them make out. And then they're like, okay, this is supposed to be some sort of friend of Bette Midler's. So, so they cut to a hotel where she's like dyeing her hair and then they start making out Bette Midler and this, right. uh, this British queen or whatever. But then the guy comes in and sees that she like cheated on him and then they go crazy and get into this like fight where he hits her and then she knees him in the balls and throws this thing and and then the that woman disappears never to be spoken of again and you're like okay what the fuck just happened yeah I, I, I okay, so you and I are kind of sharing a brain a little bit this episode because I was actually going to make that exact same point about how the ex-lesbian lover just right. sort of <laughs> came in for just one scene so that it could set up uh, Frederick Forrest to like just open palm, just like smack her right across the face. And you're talking about the plus negatives. It's so true because I think that... It's very common in, in, in old movies, actually, where a guy would literally just, like, boom, like, right, like, if, uh, like, in, in um, All About Eve, at the end, like, Anne, uh, was it Anne ba no, Anne Baxter, is it Anne Baxter? I'm confusing her with Anne, yeah, Anne Baxter just gets fucking taken out at one point for stepping mm -hmm. out of line. And it doesn't, it, but it has nothing to do with the movie. It's never then about how the guy was an asshole. It was just so acceptable. Right. And, that was only 27 years before this movie 
came out. And you're right, that scene where he just like fucking takes her out. It was like, what was the maybe just because I guess like the the rose, which by the way I hate that name, the rose. Mm. She it's it's supposed to demonstrate like just how damaged she is because we also forgot to mention the fact that she feels a little unsettled going back to her hometown to perform because as she put it, she got, when she was in high school, she got drunk and (laughs) quote, took on the whole football team. Oh, I was clutching my pearls at that one because uh, any gay guy listening is like jealous, but I'm serious. She fucked the whole she fucked the whole football team and one of the guys at the local bars was like screaming at her when she was on stage being like hey hey honey honey remember when i fucked you and all that stuff so i don't understand why that needed to be do you remember that that scene where but he does that thing where he shakes the his beer bottle to like mimic i'm assuming some sort of ejaculation but it was the most disappointing little splooge when the you know what i mean (laughs) couldn't they have given that guy a retake like come on i gotta i gotta go home everyone in my hometown is gonna think i'm i've got these sad little he's you know what i mean it was i I thought that was (laughs) wow uh, no, that's true. Uh, there is one of an interesting part. Um, I don't know if you've seen the new A Star is Born with Bradley Cooper and Lady Gaga. But yeah, you know the scene whenever she uh, whenever she first, first meets Frederick Forrest and then they go into that like drag bar? Yes. And they're doing, uh, the drag queen on stage is doing um, Betty Davis and whatever happened to Baby Jane. She's doing the um, I've Written a Letter to Daddy, the song. And I don't know if this was like, if a star is born with Lady Gaga and Bradley Cooper, I don't know if that was like a little wink to the rose mm-hmm. mm. or something. Cause I, I was like, Oh, this is exactly like the scene from a star. I don't know if they kind of just ripped that off or it was like a little, a little nod. Yeah. I don't know. That's a good point. I was like, oh, it was, man, it, yeah, very, very, very similar. But talking about Bette Midler's in, uh, uh, performance in this, up until this point in her career, so she had, she was very, very young. She was uh, under 30 at this point. She'd already won an wow. Emmy, a Tony, and a Grammy. So if she had won the Oscar for this, it's like she would have been the EGOT. Right. I feel like the Academy probably would have voted against her because... Because um, she had won the Golden Globe that year. She had won the Golden Globe that year, and she didn't think that she was going to. And um, she was... Okay, so in this movie... You know, she is a she is a scalding hot mess. She goes there. She's very unlikable, but you still kind of have sympathy for her. Um, she's very flamboyant. She's very angry. She's always screaming. She's shrieking. Um, very great performances as a as a, a singer. I didn't love the Janis Joplin impression, but it was kind of the point of the movie. And um, she just kind of sang the shit out of it, acted the shit out of it, and she'd really just like went there even though mm-hmm. the character was i mean frankly just very unlikable and kind of annoying but like i love that she just because that's a as an actor that's a very brave choice because you can basically just completely cut yourself off at the knees if you're just going to play it that way but it kind of just all worked like all of the reasons why i wouldn't like it is the reasons why i did like it if that makes right. sense the thing too is like i for me sometimes i I guess it's hard uh, to sort of, I guess through the film, some of the stuff that she would do, it's just so infuriating. And it's like, I think to try to root it in that sort of like, okay, why is she doing all this? 
but then every once in a while you'd, you'd get like you'd be so like annoyed by her it's like why would anyone be around her but then she would go and perform and you're like god damn it this woman has magnetism you know what i mean like it's uh-huh. just she just and and you see it too like at the uh at the end of the film where she's relapsed and done heroin in the telephone booth of her high school oh, yeah. football field yeah. and uh <laughs> so one of those or it's like okay i thought that so like i think about my first experience coming home to perform uh my art form in my hometown and i opened for bowser and blue at a soft seat theater and ate it in front of a uh, 500 uh super old people so i was like oh i guess the secret would have been to do heroin (laughs) (laughs) but the thing that drove me so crazy so i'm watching this like that this that midler zombie get dragged out of a helicopter to go on stage and there's two two like i'm seeing her being like dragged up there and i'm like how does nobody in this rock and roll community think like maybe she needs a little bit of coke? You know what I mean? Let's just get her, let's get her going a little bit. But uh, <laughs> that's true. That is that is a very very yeah, astute like, nobody, observation. <laughs> nobody's got coke. That's um, absolutely hilarious. I love. It. But she totally, a little bit. But then you see that like she totally comes alive for that like last song, and it's like, and it's the moment that she kind of wanted, where it was like. Oh my God, I wanted to come home to my hometown and blah, blah, blah. And she got to do what, you know, that thing. And she forgives them. She says that she forgives them. Yeah. Does she die at the end? Is that what happened? She's totally dead. Yeah. She's totally dead. There's that weird scene, too, because then, like, everybody goes to her. You know, like, it opens whenever you get these, like, um, you know, the mom from Everybody Loves Raymond? Uh, Yeah. 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 Yes. So I think she plays uh Bette Midler's mom and so the the opening scene of the film is like a bunch of people in this room that's plastered in photos of like famous people like James Dean and Marilyn Monroe or whatever and then at the end after she's like fallen or whatever and died then that the, the last little snippet of the film is like it's you go back to that opening scene where you have these people that are inside this room which I'm assuming is like either her bedroom in her childhood home or like maybe like a space she had in the basement and there's like a guy who takes a picture and then mal the like her rebound army guy remember the second army guy that that drives her around yes 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 yes. he turns off the light which i'm assuming is like hey by the way the lady's dead if anybody's wondering usually when someone pulls the chain on the naked light bulb floating from the ceiling it usually means yeah (laughs) this isn't the happy ending we were looking for it's symbolic absolutely yeah okay i like i like when they really hammer home that you know that last little because i mean i guess the movie could have ended with just her collapsing on stage but but it, yeah. it had to be it had to really just like stab you in the heart now we could actually talk about i could talk about this movie for forever but we do have to move on okay. we need to talk about jill clayberg in starting over <laughs> with mr bart reynolds so uh, do you know how i think uh, they came up with this title it was in the how? editing room and once they were finished they're like okay what can we do to make this movie good and they're like i don't know starting over can we do over (laughs) (laughs) so you did not care for this film i think it was there was so many confusing elements to it to me 
I did. Okay. Here's the thing. I, I watched it and I think I didn't not like it until the last five minutes. I was, I, the parts, some parts of it drove me crazy throughout. Um, and I think most of them were related to whether or not Murphy Brown had a legitimate singing career. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. And, uh, but then Yo, the end, was that? That was <laughs> it was so crazy to me. Cause it's like one of those things where it's like, she sings at the beginning and she's terrible, right? Yeah. Right. She's terrible. But then after that, she calls him to say, she got a record deal. <laughs> and I'm like, wait a minute um yeah i so think because it, it, it is supposed to be like a comedy and she was nominated for an oscar i mean candace bergen was nominated for an oscar so i think it was supposed to read as like oh like pop stars are like not actual performers oh. or i think that's what it was supposed to read as i'm not sure okay yeah it was uh it was weird uh, that's the thing that just kind of was like i, I was so confused by it Cause I was like, Oh, okay. And I thought like, they didn't really establish that he was this, like, he writes new articles for an airline. Like that's Burt Reynolds. Do you want to give us an synopsis? I'm so sorry. I really. Oh, no, that's a, yeah. So basically starting over, it's just about Burt Reynolds is getting a divorce to uh, with Candace, getting a divorce from Candace Bergen. And then he meets uh, Jill Clayburgh because uh, Burt Reynolds brothers sets uh, them up. And then they get along and then, uh, you know, the previous marriage comes between them and it actually kind of is sounding like the chapter two description. Right. Uh, <laughs> and uh, then he does get back together with his ex-wife, Candice Bergen, and then he realizes that he should have been with Jail Clayberg the whole time and then they end up together at the end. Mm. Yeah. Um, just a just like a little side note, not even just about Jill Clayburg, but uh, Burt Reynolds back in the day, like handsome double hot list for sure. Wow, he was a good looking man. <laughs> good looking man. And also it's like, it's one of those, it's it's interesting too, because it's like, how, how did you feel about his, let's call it magnetism in this? You know what I mean? Like, was he, like, do you feel as though like, because, you know, he was kind of giving uh, Jill a bit of the runaround, but it's like, does his, kind of like i don't know this he has like this weird stoicness but there's like a weird childishness to it too it's like is is that working for anyone or is it just all burt reynolds look you know what i mean i i think no i mean for me like yeah i it was it was all working for it was all working okay. for mama for this sure is, this, because... is, this is some mustache burt reynolds too you know what I mean? yeah i know exactly and that was like this that was one of the like the facts about the movie that like this is the one time that he didn't have his trademark <laughs> mustache i was like whoa um but anyway just talking about jill clayberg so she was previously nominated for an unmarried woman that is actually probably people's favorite performance by jill clayberg if you don't know who jill, jill clayberg is she was in bridesmaids she's annie's mom she actually passed um after that movie came out she died i think of cancer when she was 65 oh. which is really sad um jill clayberg in this movie is uh very very I actually preferred Jill Clayburgh in this movie to an unmarried woman. And I feel like I can hear a gay gasp somewhere when I say this, but Jill Clayburgh, I loved her in this movie. I actually really enjoyed this movie a lot. I thought that she and Burt Reynolds had really great chemistry, even though mm-hmm. like just, they don't, they don't really look like a cute couple, but they worked really well together. Um, I think that, uh, I love how like she would always kind of freak out and then defend herself and then realize that she was wrong. So she was kind of a bit of a dramatic person. Like whenever she assumed that uh, 
Burt Reynolds was like pursuing her at like in in the dark, like outside, and then she's when like, they were going to the same dinner party, yeah. <laughs> Which, in Jill Clayburgh's defense, he was definitely like <laughs> pursuing her, but then. Totally. And then she jumps out and she's like, get the fuck away from me. I'll cut your fucking balls off. And and then, you know, he goes in t- inside and then she, then they're like, oh, my God, like Jill, like was almost just attacked outside. And then he's she's like, can you, yeah, can you describe him? And then he walks in and then she's like, lol. So <laughs> it's like a fun it's a lighter movie. Like, it's you know, definitely lighter. The only thing that I found frustrating with it was like, obviously there was going to be a moment where maybe he would, you know, I knew there was going to be a Candace Bergen kind of reunion or whatever. Uh-huh. But it's like, do you remember in There's Something About Mary when Brett Favre shows up? Oh gosh, I haven't seen There's Something okay. About Mary. Okay. Like anyway, it's just this weird twist where it's like, you know, uh, Ben Stiller's pursuing this woman and then all of a sudden there's like this big reveal that her like ex-boyfriend was Brett Favre. Like, you know, who's the most, famous NFL quarterback at the time but it's like so when Burt Reynolds goes back to be with Candace it's like she gets set up with this guy who I guess was like what the center of a the like he was a Boston Celtic or something and so like she just he's like seven feet tall she has a laughing attack when she meets him but then it's there's this thing where she goes (laughs) to all his practices the way no one ever does so whenever Burt Reynolds (laughs) makes his grand display of like you know love and affection he like shows up at basketball practice i'm and and then just cuts across the court nobody stops playing it's fine there's just a guy there's just just a guy in here being i think there was another guy oh yeah it was his uh his divorce friend who drove him there so there was like i felt like the ending felt a bit like forced and campy but there was still like it was a lot of charm to it i did really enjoy those scenes of him in with that divorced men support group because it's interesting, interesting. With a, because it's like i i mean it, it's still framing it in the sense of like 1979 it's like it's interesting to have this you know i it's supposed to be like there's some comedic elements to this film but in the sense like there's this scene of like they go back to this these of, of men where it's pretty much in a in a film it's like hey it's just a bunch of guys sitting around talking about their feelings and it's like wow that's kind of it's in, like I mean I don't know what other movie I've I've ever seen of that time to be like uh-huh. yeah just a couple of a bunch of guys talking about being sad that they're divorced or struggling with. But at this time movie. historically that was that was like that was like hot hot because like Kramer versus Kramer just came right. out all of the like uh, feminist movement was like going strong and uh, women were getting back into the workplace like in the the movies like starting over. The, previously that was about like you know career woman uh, career women and versus non-career women mm-hmm. and then actually the non-career woman that chose to like make a like have a family and make a home was actually like the villain it was just like th- this was th- this was a very common narrative during this time and i do agree with you that that was a really interesting thing with like all of the the divorcee dudes i thought that mm-hmm. was kind of interesting and and like something that you don't really see that often and um I think that with Jill Clayburgh's performance, there were just so many, there were a couple scenes that really stood out to me. And I remember when, um, you know, uh, uh, Burt Reynolds says that, you know, I promise that I will never call you ever again. And then she just breaks down and then she suddenly just has this wall up and she doesn't want him to come any closer and like, do you need to go now? And she slams the door and stuff like that. It's, it, it's a very dramatic scene, but at the same time, like she acts it very beautifully and um, mm. you can definitely feel her, 
her pain and her feelings were always very, very complex because she'd be like, well, I really like you, but you just divorced somebody. So like, why don't we give it like three or four months? And she was like, um, setting a lot of really great boundaries, uh, like that were very healthy. And like, I, but you could also feel that she really wanted to like fuck Burt Reynolds and like, mm-hmm. I I really really liked her in this movie and yeah I really preferred her in this movie than in an unmarried woman um and then unless there's anything else that you would like to add I think that we should move on to our last nominee uh but before we do I will just say that um it's so funny when you watch like the male co-stars of these of this time because you know, Burt Reynolds very very good looking guy but at the time it's like male movie stars were not they didn't have to be super gorgeous like the girls did. And right. male movie stars during this time, you know, they didn't grow up with sunblock. So it was like looking <laughs> at like a leather shoe. Like, and I mean, don't get me wrong, like the leather shoes, they never looked hotter. But I'm just saying like, mm. it, it was always very, very unfair at the time. Like the these gorgeous actresses with like a foot male co-star but yeah. in this particular case um burt reynolds handsome devil hot list number one okay uh and that that was refreshing that was the point that i was trying to make it was refreshing <laughs> to watch that that was the point that i was trying to make okay so let's talk about our winner sally field for norma ray um this is her first academy award her second was for places in the heart and no, this is not the acceptance speech where she's like, you know, I wasn't sure if you liked me, but now I know that you do like me. That is one of the most misquoted quotes of all time. Um, Sally Field at this time was known as The Flying Nun, a very popular TV show that was ridiculous and shouldn't have worked, but, you know, Sally Field made it work. And uh, if anybody uh, watched Will and Grace, Rosario was the co-star in um, The Flying Nun. And in this movie, Norma Ray, she is like a small town, scrappy trailer park girl demanding a union in the terrible textile factory that is uh, the main source of income in the town that she grows up in. I don't know if they made it clear like where exactly they were, but it was like a Bible belt mm. in the South kind of situation. Sally Field won the Golden Globe and the Oscar. And at the time, this was a very historic win. I mean, for the Oscar because Sally Field was a TV star and for a ridiculous show. And uh, at the time, if you did television, you were seen as less than in the industry. Mm. And it was there was shame to doing television. Doing television meant that your career was over. Not nowadays where every single movie star you know is in some Netflix series or some right. TV show on Amazon or whatever. But at the time... Um, Sally Field, nobody thought that she would win this Oscar and it was a big deal that she did because she was a TV star. And again, this was looked down upon. And that's why when she won her second Oscar for Places in the Heart, that's why she says, you know, the first time I wasn't sure if you liked me, but now I see that you do like me and I feel accepted. What she's talking about is she feels accepted by the movie industry. And so she feels like she's one of the movie stars now. And, um, uh, this movie, Norma Ray. Uh, this is my first time watching it. And the thing about Sally Field, I could watch her like smoking on a toilet. Like I just love her. I feel mm. like she can just, br- she can make anything kind of interesting and fun. And she's just so, there's so many layers to her performances and it always, it's so real. And if, if anybody has never seen Norma Ray, it's kind of like the original Aaron Brockovich. 
Right. And she just is sassy and scrappy and she's a survivor and she just, her whole life. One thing that I thought was kind of like really, really interesting was um, she never becomes a victim. And one thing that I thought was very clever because uh, this movie was nominated for best writing. I think it also won best original song, but I need to double check that. But um, uh, an example to, sh- to show, and this is very well written because, you know, you were talking before about Bette Midler being like fucking punched or slapped or whatever mm-hmm. in the scene where Norma Ray gets hit by that married guy in the motel. Right. Do you notice how she doesn't like react in a way where she's a, like a victim? It's almost like she kind of just took the hit, mm-hmm. accepted the abuse and just kind of walked out of the room. And she's like, uh, because she's this person where she just, she gets up again and she just keeps fighting and she literally just doesn't let anything kind of, stop her and she refuses to be a victim and i thought that that was a very very smart scene and i thought that was very well written and it, it's so perfect to the movie I, I i'd never seen this movie and i even like when i looked it up on imdb or whatever and i saw the it's funny when you look at the poster for something like trying to get a sense of what it's about <laughs> right what it's about <laughs> and there's the one where it's like she's got the, her hands above her head with her foot behind her like kicking behind her you know what i mean do you know that you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> like blossom <laughs> yeah and it's just like it just i'm like what the uh, i'm like i had no idea and i love i love this movie it was mm-hmm. so great and it's like just the dynamic between her and um um ron liebman the guy who played ruben sort of the union organizer from new york and it's like if you think about it like even in their first interactions where she's like she asked him flat out like are you a jew and he's like excuse me and she's like i've never met a jew before and you know he talks about like what would, she asked him at one point like what would you be doing if you were back home and he's like oh you know i'd do i'd you know go see a go to the Met and then go see a show and then play poker with my friends and get a hot dog from blah, blah, blah. And it's like, they're from completely different worlds, but it's like, they're, it's so funny too, because we talk about Burt Reynolds and just having this like, you know, just oozing Burt Reynolds dumb. But it's like, I was, I'm watching this like uh, Ron Liebman and I'm like, God damn it. There's, there's something about this guy that's just so like sexy in this movie. Uh You know what I mean? Like I see that. Yeah. He's just completely alone on an island, you know what I mean? Of like people who are hostile to him. He goes door to door and people are like, get the hell out of here before I send my dog after you, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, and, but it's just, he, there's a a sense of him that he just like, it's almost like that's where you can see that they have this kind of bond where it's like, I, I'm in I go to places where people don't want me around, but I don't care. You know what I mean? And there's that do thing. I, I do what I want. And it's like, he gets called a kike by some of the managers at the plant or whatever. And he doesn't back down. And it's that, that's that scene where he walks in and goes to the thing. It's like, you see that like normal, like that pinnacle scene at the end with Norma Ray, it's like that same thing where it's like, oh yeah. And like you I never really got a sense of where their relationship was gonna go, but there was just mm-hmm. something so like, I don't know, there was something so fascinating and like yeah, super sexy about it. I I agree with you. I, I did like that too. Let's talk about though how there was a little bit of a confusing tension totally. between them. 
and I kind of thought it was it ended on a sad note for no reason. Like he was tr- <laughs> like he was like trying to make her feel bad for no reason. Like and mm. then she stood there for twenty minutes while the credit rolled. Right. And I was like I was like, well, that was a shitty way because he was like, yeah, I I just love spending time with you, and he almost was making it seem like yeah, it's your fault because you're so cute and this mm. is what you've done to me, and now I'm gonna go home and be alone because of you. So bye. It was a weird a weird sort of ending, but. Do you remember the scene where they were putting her into the cop car? Yeah. And she was resisting and yeah. flailing and screaming and kicking. Can you imagine filming that? Can you imagine having to be Sally Field in that scene? That would be yeah. a very difficult, like ridiculous type of scene. And imagine if you had to do it like more than once or more than twice or more. Like, I just feel like Sally Field was norma ray she was a real living breathing person her accent got a little too what are you doing daddy for me a little bit but that's fine i i think that um she's so emotionally intelligent and she's so well at playing it that i yeah like every time that she's on the screen it's very very captivating and i um like i and the thing too is like i love um like an underdog kind of story in a sense, in mm-hmm. a way. And the thing too is like, so whenever she gets fired and then she refuses to leave and she goes back into the plant. And the thing is, is like, I mean, they do like, they establish it throughout the film, just about how loud this place is. You know what I mean? With all these machines going on. And so there's scenes where there is dialogue going on, but it's like, it almost sounds like they're, the whole thing's being recorded like under a train that's how loud it is yes absolutely. and so when she writes union on that piece of cardboard and she stands up and then like you know people start look, looking at her and they're staring at her and then they shut up like every, they, it starts with all the women first they start shutting off their machine and then it kind of spreads throughout and then at one point everybody's shut off their machine and the thing is, is with these places is like they give you that vibe and it's just like business versus people where it's like you know um we never stop her dad was 15 minutes from a break when he was having a heart attack and they're like you're 15 minutes away it's fine and then he had a heart attack and died on the job this place never stops and it stopped for her and it was like i fucking wept i cried like it was i was like oh my god like i have chills now and to think going from that moment where she like she you know she has this like moment of triumph and then she goes outside and she realizes that she's going to jail and just like she's just so crushed mm-hmm. oh, no so I, I know you know what's interesting um this is actually true uh marcia mason jane fonda and jill clayberg were all offered the role of norma ray and they all turned it down wow um, yeah, this this was a very modern performance and kind of a precursor to how movies are made now. So, for example, the best wait, I mean, I know I've already said this, but like uh, Aaron Brockovich, Aaron Brockovich is like the modern Norma Ray. And this type of movie was a shift in the movie industry in the sort of way that like um, Bonnie and Clyde was a shift in the movie in terms of movie violence. This was definitely sort of like um, a story about really poor, impoverished people and um, the injustices and also uh, where America, it was a controversial topic because a lot of people at the time were very against unions in the United States. So this movie was both topical, um, but also 
uh, kind of interesting because it could be a little controversial. Mm. And that was kind of like the new kind of, I guess you could even argue that with the China syndrome as well. But basically it, uh, it, was a, it was a new sort of pivot into a new direction of where the movie industry was going to be going. The last thing that I just want to say, the only little thing that I have here that I thought was just, it made me laugh really hard, was whenever he picks her up from jail and then he starts going on about, oh, you think it's hard? Like I've seen mm. somebody like shot in the head. I've seen somebody like trampled. I've seen somebody beaten. I've seen an old person hit with like a bat. And it's like, hey, girl, um, thanks for the heads up on that one. Like, I didn't realize that the textile factory union representatives were such high stakes. Like, mm. Jesus Christ. Yeah, that's, that wasn't in the pamphlet you were handing out. Exactly. Yeah, that's right. Um, but uh, really enjoyed this movie, really enjoyed Sally Field in this movie. But I think that we have, unless you have anything else that you would like to add. No. Um, Okay, I think that it's time for us to reveal who we think should have won the Oscar, and I will give you the pleasure of going first. Okay. Well, I think that the Oscar should have gone to... <laughs> Sally Field for Norma Ray. Okay, I love why? I mean, it's just, it was just like such a fun, like a great like kind of scrappy performance i think the story was so good i think she was so great in it she showed like a super fun range i like i loved her scenes with like with ruben and it's like even you know like there's this weird like evolution where you get this vibe that she kind of bounced from from she had a you know she had this reputation for being a girl who had a bunch of guys and stuff like that and she lays it out for her kids at the end after being arrested but it's like one of those things where it's like hey i want my kids to know who i am and like and what i stand for and it was like just one of those i, I don't know i just i i you know there's that one scene where Bo bridges you know is like telling her that she's sort of like not around as a wife or a mom or all these things and, and she kind of flips out and stuff. And I thought that was a little bit like over the top in a sense but it was just like everything else and it was just I don't know I just I just loved her in this movie it was like it was powerful she was like she was just great like I just I don't know it was one of those like I haven't I, I guess I haven't seen a movie that like hit me emotionally as much and it was so much of her like even and that was the thing like just her standing on this table with a sign over her head you know mm -hmm. what I mean just like and it was it went on and on like for minutes and it was just like it was great I I loved it I loved her it was great great okay I love that okay so this is a this is actually really really tricky because if I'm being honest with you I actually could give this to three separate people I loved a lot of these performances I love this movie but um I think that the Oscar should have gone to Bette Midler in The Rose. And frankly, I, yeah, I actually really, really like Sally Field. I think that she, I think, I'm, I'm not angry that she won an Oscar for this. I think if Jane Fonda would have won, I wouldn't have been angry about that either. But the reason why I picked Bette Midler is because... I didn't really realize like how many like little things uh, have been taken from this movie over the years, like in terms of the style of way they tell the story, the type of 
you know, drugged up character. The fact that she literally looked like Buffalo Bill. Um, I don't know if that was a not. Maybe it was. I don't know. But, the, you know, the, the stars, or, there were just so many things in this movie that I really recognized. So this movie was really before its time. I'm glad that Bette Midler chose to not do the Janis Joplin story and she went and kind of made like her own little version. Mm. Um, and I just... I've seen her other Oscar nominated performance called for the boys. And if it was between the, cause I didn't really care for that movie. I actually much preferred this one. Um, I think that between her two nominated performances, I think that she should have won for the Rose over for the boys. And um, I just, I loved how she was really, really unlikable, but it didn't make me want to turn off the movie. I liked that. She just was, yeah, like just a hot mess, drunk person and um i love that it was just a very honest sort of account of this fictitious character and um i liked that it was very gritty i liked that it didn't have a happy ending and i just uh in terms of just the performance i'm gonna give it to beth midler it's also it's, and i think this is the thing too is like when you talk about a star is born we talk about like lady gaga it's, it's like one of the when i thought about like Lady Gaga's performance in that movie, everyone's like, oh my, it, it's like, part of me has to remove, like kind of subtract her right. like performances on stage because it's like, of course, <laughs> she's great at that part. You know what I mean? And for me, there was an element of- Oh, she's of the pop star playing herself. Yeah, of course. I know. <laughs> but with that Midler, I was like, God, and like, and I will say this, like her onstage performances fucking made that movie for me too it was she was so entertaining to watch on like when she was on stage and it was just like, oh that too so yeah wild. the singing oh the, the performance God. absolutely absolutely um okay well that concludes another episode of best actress um everybody uh check out matt carter's debut comedy album northbound baby also congrats on your actual baby, baby. and uh where can people find you on social media um, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Carter Gan, C A R T E R G A N. G A N. Okay. Yeah, it's. I used to do a. I used to have a comedy duo uh, with Nick Carter, and we were called the Carter Gans, and we used to wear cardigan sweaters on stage. It was uh, <laughs> short lived. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to end it on that note. Thank you, Matt, so much for being a guest, and we'll see you next time. Bye.